Do you have any advice for someone listening right now in effective ways? I mean, with your with your training, your background, your education, that people can have these healthy conversations, find some common ground and be okay with whatever the outcome might be. Thank you for having it locked to another edition of the Launchpad podcast. I'd be J-Man, and I'm very happy to have this next guest here. This is Dr. Julie Panessi, and she taught ethics at Huron University College, affiliated with Western University before she was terminated for refusing mandates. And now she's the pandemic ethics scholar, a great role for you at the Democracy Fund. We're going to talk about her book, how we got here, and how we get out. Julie, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you. I'm delighted. So I'm going to start off this podcast very much how you would usually start off your first class of the (laughs) semester. (laughs) And I was watching one of your lectures. And what you usually do is that you point to this picture uh, that was taken in 1936 of a lone man refusing to do the Nazi salute. And you would ask your students how many individuals there thought that we would be the one person that didn't salute. Uh, So maybe if you could speak a little bit more to how your students react uh, and how that picture embodies where we are today in society. (laughs) Yes, good, good set of questions. It's so interesting because in ethics, we often use what's called thought experiments. So basically a thought experiment for your viewers who are watching is it's a hypothetical situation that you're, you're asking someone to imagine to try to push on our intuitions about some moral concept, right? It, it, thought experiments in ethics. And so, um, but what's interesting about them is that very often when we try to imagine how we would perform in one of those situations, we have a false kind of imagination about what our actions would be. So a lot of psychological literature and and, and ethics and psychology literature combined has shown that we're not great at guessing uh, what we would be likely to do in a particular situation. So that uh, picture, um, you know, it's a great tool to try to push on people's intuitions and get them engaged in thinking about how they might react in a situation like that, where you're called upon to physically, you know, engage in a performative act that solidifies your agreement with and support of a very specific, and I think in most people's views, very harmful sort of political ideology. Um, And if you're asked to do that, but you don't you don't actually support that political ideology, what would your response be? Would you just comply and go with the flow for the sake of not drawing attention to yourself? Or would you stand up and say, you know, this is wrong, I'm not going to do this, I'm going to engage in an act of defiance, whatever that is, in his case, you know, uh, crossing his arms or something like that. And it's really interesting, I mean, you know, the numbers vary depending on the size of the class or the year. And, and actually, as each year goes on, students are less likely to say anything at all. And I think there's some really interesting culture of silence sorts of reasons for that. But um, generally speaking, the vast majority say, oh, well, I wouldn't do that if I thought it was wrong. I wouldn't, you know, salute the Nazi party if I thought it was wrong. Um, psychological literature shows that that's unlikely to be true, that something like 85% of people will not um, refuse to comply when when there's pressure put on them. And I think this COVID situation, which in the book I call a COVID test, and by that I don't just mean a PCR test or a biological test to detect a virus or symptoms of some kind, but, um, you know, a test of our morality, a test of who we are, a test of our integrity, a test of what we're willing to sacrifice for the sake of doing what we believe to be the right thing, 
this COVID test is showing that we are really, we have a crisis, I think, in our in morality. And um, by that, I mean, especially that so many people who believe that what's happening now, that the pandemic response from our government that's being pushed on us is wrong, but are too afraid to speak out or don't speak out or act against the narrative for whatever reason. And we have heavy, heavy pressures to comply and conform and not stand out, not blow the whistle. Right. right. And I would also point people to the ash conformity experiments, uh, you know, uh, one that was performed on a number of different levels throughout the decades. And it just shows that people are just uh, they have this propensity to just follow. And is there any way to combat that human nature? Yes, apparently. So this is just fa a fascinating area of research. And you're quite right, um, the Ash and the Milgram experiments. And, and I think what we're going through now are, are lend an awful lot of support to the idea that humans are highly conformative creatures and we are very motivated to comply. And one of the reasons for that comes from our evolutionary history. And um, we uh, process fear of ostracization in much the same way that we process fear of physical pain, right? So um, I'm as motivated not to uh, be heckled by my the people in my social group that matter to me as I am not to get run over by a car crossing the road. And that's a powerful motivation, right? But one thing that those experiments you mentioned show us is that allies have tremendous power to help us resist compliance and conformity. So if we have even one other person who is willing to stand with us or show some degree of empathy for us or support for us, that increases like the strength of our moral capacities almost exponentially, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in the interviews I do and the speeches I give, I try to talk about how important it is to get strength from other people and to form bonds with other people and to build on the existing trusting relationships that we already have, because we know that without those, we are, so, it's so much harder for us to act with integrity, which is to act consistently with our deeply held beliefs and values. So basically like phoning a friend is a big deal when it comes to morality. Right. Helps a lot. <laughs> now to go back to the termination, and I don't want to spend too much time there, but in regards to talking about having that one other person and fear obviously being a huge motivator right now, uh, pushing everybody into compliance. And again, we're having a conversation about mandates. I just want to make that clear. Unfortunately, it usually always falls under the umbrella of vaccinations itself. And that's not the talk that I want to have. Um, there are much bigger issues, aren't there, that are underlying that more punctuated one. Absolutely. And so what was it like to kind of just meet people on a human level? Because so many people look up to you as a, a spokesperson and a voice of reason uh, to where you're being terminated from your job and maybe you're surprised that you're not getting as much support as you wanted or people within your community are now raining down on you uh, and meeting you with a lot of resistance and instead of showing you that empathy that you show others you know it's just not being reciprocated it's been i mean as horrible as things have been over the last several months it's also been an opportunity to learn so much about human nature and, and it's the results have been very, very interesting. So as you mentioned, I mean, a lot of people, people who were strangers to me a few months ago uh, have, have written to me from all over the world or they come up to me at, event, at events and they're very supportive. And um, one of the comments that really speaks to me and I, I think this was on a YouTube video a while ago, it was so lovely. Someone said, thank you for being 
a big voice for all our little voices. Hmm. And I have to say that that um, gets me through a lot of days when it would might it might be very tempting to give up. Um, I, I won't I won't repeat some of the things that have been said about me on on social media, Twitter especially. Uh, but the worst comments come from my colleagues at Western, you know, and and our 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 utterances and behaviors that you would not I would not have. Maybe others are more sort of savvy than I am, but I would not have expected to come from um, professors. These are people who have. They not only have PhDs, but they have been hired to the exclusion of many others, sometimes hundreds of other people applying for those jobs because the hiring committee thought that these would be the best people to educate our next generation. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a kind of, there's an odd um, sort of dissonance, right, between feeling incredibly ostracized from this group that I, I've had a great deal of respect for and a great deal of um, fraternity with for over 20 years, uh, and now finding so much support in a community of people that I didn't know existed a few months. It's a very odd, but uh, you know, you gotta try to find the, the richness and the wealth in human life where you can, and in the surprises, and um, try to do that every day. <laughs> right. Well, Julie, one of the things you taught your class year after year was critical thinking. And you would think, the peers that you speak of right now would be the ones that maybe would excel in that area. Maybe since this is a conversation that's happening a lot where critical thinking seems to be getting pooped on, where it's a term that's almost being used as a derogatory term for anyone that questions authority or questions the narrative. What is critical thinking in your <laughs> definition? Very good question. I mean, I think there are a lot of... Uh factors that go into the negative uh, perspective of that now. I mean, I've heard the strangest comments about what we mean by science and falsification now. And, and we do have this idea, I think, that um, our almost our human religion now is science. And I'm going to put that in quotation marks because we now think of science as a perfect system, as not needing questioning or dissension or revisability. Um, and that's not what we've seen science to be in the past, right? Science operates on this idea of falsifiability and innovation and question asking and the possibility of error and mistake and creative and creativity requires um, an open stance that allows for mistake, right? Um, and I'm just forgetting what your original question was now because I'm going on about science. What did you say? Oh, what is critical thinking, right? Well, you know, there's, I think there's an assumption, a presumption, a requirement that in order to be capable of critical thought, you have to be capable of independent thought, right? You have to be able to step back from what other people believe, what you're being told to believe or told to do, and evaluate that as a source of information, but not as determining information or determining directives, right? So if someone says to you, um, you know, uh, I think you should eat 10 oranges a day. That's going to be the best for your health. Well, a critical thinker does not say, oh, I'm going to eat 10 oranges a day because someone told me to. A critical thinker says, well, that's an interesting piece of information. Let me think about that a little bit. Let me try to do some research. Let me talk to some people who might know. Let me try it out and then evaluate the results. And so there's, a, there's this presumption or requirement of autonomy and self 
self-reliance and self-directedness that critical thinking requires. And so I think the reason we're seeing critical thinking disparaged so much right now is because we're seeing autonomy and independence and independent thought disparaged. We do not have a society, whether we're talking about inside academia or in our culture more broadly, we do not have a narrative from our government that supports autonomy at all. We have a government that wants basically to write all jurist, you know, uh, the concept of informed consent, which is the idea of autonomous, self-directed medical decision-making, who wants to write that out of jurisprudence, out of our, our laws, out of our, our, our biomedical um, ethical codes. Um, you would not know that even exists in Canada anymore. So critical thought, um, I mean, for people who are watching, critical thought is free thought. It's feeling free to develop your own ways of thinking. And that doesn't mean that, you know, that still allows for the fact that some conclusions are more supported than others. Some lines of thought are more interesting or more rich or, or closer to the truth than others. I'm not advocating for a kind of relativism, but um, I think we have to allow people to think for themselves if we're to have a chance of getting closer to the truth. Any time in history, when we have tried to squash individual thought, it has not turned out well for us. I don't know why we're trying it again. You know, I mean, even John Stuart Mill, who is one of the fathers of utilitarianism, and, and utilitarianism is thought to be sort of the dominant um, ethical ethos or code right now. This idea that um, you know our, our sole goal as a moral agent is to produce good for the collective, right? Um, and even he talked about the harms of uh, limiting individual free expression, because when you do that, you, not only do you close off the possibility that you might hear the truth from someone, but you close off the possibility that you might hear error, which helps in a variety of ways that can help to solidify your own beliefs. It can help to, um, you know, we need the full spectrum of opinions and a kind of rigor uh, in our homes, in our education systems, in society at large, in order for us to, I think as a human species, a, a group of humans, to progress towards truth rather than just repeat the same mistakes over and over again. Yeah, I agree. I had a conversation with Randy Hillier when lockdowns were happening. And it's crazy to think that we've even been in a lockdown. Like that's, that's nuts. And we keep on doing that over and over again. And one of the things Randy had said in regards to there being a healthy level of conflict and there being a dialogue in between the two sides, and there's no dialogue happening right now, which I think is really the most uh, uncomfortable part of this process, is that how come we don't want to have this healthy level of conflict to where we can create better policy? It leads to better policy. It leads to it leads to better outcomes, and uh, especially when people feel that they they've had the opportunity to at least express themselves, uh, that maybe they'd be more compliant to move forward. So I'm really surprised that this is the method that we're using to move forward. Yeah, I mean, I, I think historically it's proven to be wholly ineffective. It leads to terrible things, and we're closing off, as you say. I mean, it's not just the possibility that we might develop better solutions to our current problems. I mean, so the fact that we are so uh, myopically focused on 100% um, vaccination, I guess, that seems, I read Toronto Star yesterday, that seems to be what they're focused on, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so the fact that we're myopically focused on that means that we're not focusing on things like developing treatments that are being used by very brave Canadians every day. And honestly, if we just used what we've got, the knowledge we've got, 
we'd be fine. I have no doubt about that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but it's not only that, but I think you make a very good point that being able to express yourself as a citizen and believe that others hear you and value your contribution, even if they don't ultimately agree with you, is a necessary, there's, there's an integrity to that process that a flourishing, well-functioning democracy requires. And the fact that we don't have that right now, and that there seems to be very little public desire for that, um, means that our, our democracy is is ill, I believe. You know, it's we don't just have this, um, this biological challenge to deal with. We have a sickness in the very foundations of our political structure. And until we can correct for that, we're just going to be in an endless cycle of crisis and corruption and misery and fear. Mm-hmm. I've always wondered in, in this particular situation where there seems to be such a, a divide in regards to these mandates, that it would be very easy to take some of these conflicting views and put them up against the experts. I remember you saying this in one of your lectures. Why not just let you know, academia and let the scientists have a platform of differing views and, and let them share those views in a, in a public forum and let people decide for themselves what they believe. A quack would easily be pointed out as being a quack uh, if put in that large forum. Yeah, I think a big part of our problem now is that um, the majority of people follow the mainstream narrative and the mainstream narrative excludes all dissenting voices. And so they really genuinely believe, you know, that the best thing for each other is to not only, um, you know, get themselves vaccinated and social distance and wear the masks, but now also to pressure others to do those things because those others are actually responsible for the continuation of the pandemic. I mean, people have accused me of being solely responsible for the continuation of the pandemic. And my goodness, that kind of global power. Could you imagine? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I think the, I think you make a very good point that we need a kind of transparency and openness. And this back to the scientific method again. I mean, this is why it's so important within science that you allow, um, this is why we have, you know, conferences and peer-reviewed journals and um, expert panels at universities we have in the past. I mean, I, I'm not there this year, so I'm not quite sure what's going on now, but it's so important if we had that kind of transparency. I mean, Doug Ford's pandemic response team was challenged to an open debate oh was it in the spring of this year and didn't respond um Derek Sloan tried to hold a press conference with Byron Bridal and Patrick Phillips and Don Welsh and uh most of the media didn't attend and the ones who did didn't ask questions and so when I hear from people you know we're all in this together we should act for our brothers and sisters and we should care about each other and people who choose to resist the mandates or not get vaccinated are just selfish and stupid I think that uh idea and I don't mean to I don't mean to be cruel or disparaging when I say that, but that view comes from a kind of ignorance of the, the, the you know, the, the situation. Um, you know, just to give you an example, uh, our, our government likes to tell us that anyone who doesn't support the narrative uh, is an idiot, is stupid, is a conspiracy theorist. Um, well, Dr. Eric Payne, who is a Harvard-trained pediatrician from out west who was just let go because he wouldn't comply with the mandate, you know, he he specializes in the treatment of, of children. Um, and that's not known in the in the mainstream media right and now anyone who does it like it's not in principle possible to challenge the narrative 
Because mm -hmm. if you, as soon as you do, the, the narrative holders perceive any counter narrative position to be fundamentally irrational. And so if you challenge the narrative, immediately you're stigmatized as either being um, evil, right? Because you're so selfish, you must be evil, uh, or you're misguided, or you're, you know, you're just following the misinformation, which is such an interesting. Um, David Healy, who's a psychiatrist and uh, psychopharmacologist from the UK, I think he just got a position at McMaster, actually, interestingly, he just wrote a very interesting piece on how evidence-based medicine came to be called misinformation. So I think as citizens, we need to be very careful when we hear that term misinformation applied to someone, we need to do our due diligence to figure out well, what is it they're saying and what is the evidence they're supplying for their position, because it might have it might be the kind of evidence that 20 years ago in medicine or three years ago in medicine would have been considered right, right. Uh, and now it's just misinformation and dismissed because it's counter narrative. Right now with divide being greater than ever. It's obviously important that people try to find this common ground, but it seems to be incredibly difficult for people to do. Yeah. Do you have any advice for someone listening right now in effective ways? I mean, with your with your training, your background, your education, that people can have these healthy conversations, find some common ground and be OK with whatever the outcome might be. Yeah, it's really interesting the way you put that question. I mean, I think the first thing I have to say is. Uh, it's not necessarily going to be the best news. And that is that not everyone is capable of rational discussion or debate. And so part of our job as uh, people who want to engage with someone in discussion, fruitful, rational, open discussion, is to assess early on whether the person we're trying to talk to is capable of that, right? So a kind of question you can ask at some point early in the discussion before you get into the nitty gritty of it is, well, um, what kind of evidence would count for you in order to change your position or revise your position? And if that person says nothing, nothing could ever change my view on this, then you know you're dealing with a fundamentally irrational person. And there's no point in continuing the discussion. You may as well not waste your time. You're not going to keep beating, you know, uh, just throwing more and more evidence or facts as you see them at this person is, is going to have no effect. Um, you know, a lot has been written and spoken about lately about a kind of hypnotic effect on the population. And, you know, to, to speak bluntly, of course, uh, the narrative defenders will say, well, it's only, it's only the counter narrative people that are under a kind of hypnotic spell, but let's assume for the sake of argument that this can work on both sides, right? Um, you know, if it, that, that person who says there is no evidence that could be presented to me that would make me change my mind, is akin, this is a metaphor, right? But is akin to a person in a state of hypnosis because they're so focused on a singular outcome, uh, a singular path to that outcome that just like a person in a hypnotic state, all kinds of things can be going on in the world around them and they're not aware of it because they're in this sort of trance. So it doesn't matter how, I mean, I've worked with the Canadian COVID Care Alliance since March and we try to produce scientific evidence-based information about the, about COVID. Um, and we have all kinds of interesting, rigorous scientific articles. Well, if you print one of those off and give it to a person who is ir irrational in the ways that I've described, it's not going to matter. Mm -hmm. So I think the first uh, thing I would encourage you to do is to figure out who is worth speaking to uh, and only focus on those relationships. The other thing we're noticing is that people who are um, having the successes, people who are 
um, building relation, you know, either changing someone's mind on the topic, but maybe even more importantly than that, sustaining or building relationships with someone who disagrees with them, that only happens in a very, very, in a relationship that has a very high threshold of trust to begin with. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you are thinking about a friendship you have and you think, yeah, we've got some trust problems to begin with, that's probably not the relationship where you can introduce this idea that you disagree with them about the narrative and then mm -hmm. try to have a conversation about it. So I'd be inclined to focus on the relationships that are the best, the strongest, where there is the most trust to begin with. Um, and then maybe my inclination would be not to, I mean, kind of as we have done today, not to go, uh, you know, full barrels ahead at the issue you want to talk about, but to talk about some of the more underlying issues, you know, things like, how have we gotten to a place in society where we um, can't talk to each other anymore? What does it mean not to talk to each other? What do you think democracy requires? What do you think Canada will or should look like 10 years from now? You know, those kinds of questions, I think they are the real questions. I think they're the answers to those questions will explain how we got here and how we're moving forward, but they're also less threatening, right? Mm -hmm. So someone might be more willing to talk with you about those things. Right. You're so eloquently spoken. <laughs> Okay, but so you gotta recognize that you just might fail miserably. And if that happens, go and get yourself a cup of coffee and think no one could have done any better. You'll be okay. <laughs> right. You can't say the right thing to the wrong person. You can't say the wrong thing oh, to the right that's person. So right. You can't say the right thing to the wrong person. That's right. Right. So now I know we're on limited time and you do these things all day long. Yeah. And there's a reason why you wrote a book. And you wrote a book, so you'd have to do less of these. Talk to less of J-Mans <laughs> and be able to share your dialogue with more people through paperback, et cetera. If you could tell more people yeah. about your book, why you wrote it, and what you think people will get out of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I you're right. In some sense, I wanted to, I mean, when you do interviews, whether it's half an hour, an hour long, and I've done a couple that are longer than that, you still only have a, your, people listening to you are only getting a piecemeal version of, of your broader perspective. And so writing a book gave me the chance to sort of lay out my ethical arguments against the man, vaccine mandates, but that's only one chapter uh, of the book. That's the, the sort of the central chapter four. Um, in the book, there's also my personal story, what it was like to kind of go through the <laughs> mill of the, the mandate situation. Uh, but then also at the end, I gesture towards ways that we can move forward and why we can and should have hope and how we can inculcate and develop that. Um, my hope for this book is that people will it's very short it's 90 pages long you know in the second printing it's gonna be a bit longer than that but it's very short my hope is that people will see it not as a definitive answer or a definitive take on the situation but as an invitation to further dialogue and discussion and that hopefully it can give people who are reading it um, some uh, tools and information and ways of thinking through these issues so that you can have these discussions at the dinner table with your family or you know maybe give it to a friend and say hey do you want to have do you want to have a little coffee book club and we'll talk about it I, I really hope it's an opening um, kind of trying to uh, you know put a bit of a wedge into this closed system and 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 give people the the sense that um, it's okay to talk about these things. And not only that, it's really our responsibility to talk about these things. And only if we can make headway in that respect, are we going to work our way out of this problem? Right. Democracy is a job. You said something along those lines, I believe. Part, it takes some it's effort. A job. Yeah. yeah. 
I thought having, you know, being a mother was a harder job than a nine to five job, which it is, by the way. Mm -hmm. But democracy might be even harder than that because, you know, your fellow citizens don't necessarily love you in the way that your child does. Right. <laughs> and vice versa. You don't necessarily love them in the same way, you know. Mm -hmm. But and we all live together in the same country on the same planet. We've got to figure it out and we have to do a better job than we've done the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. And I think what's so valuable about this information is uh, to maybe not get so pigeonholed. I know this is the biggest issue right now, and that's all that really seems to matter. But you can apply these philosophies to all different areas of your life to live a more fruitful life, uh, to maybe do a little bit more effective listening, asking better questions, and learning. You know, the art of question asking, uh, it really is an art, because I think it, it's, um, it requires that you have listened, so that you have something then to base your, your question on, right? I mean, you can't have, it'd be very interesting. I mean, and I have had discussions with people I'm quite close to where the discussion really just consists of questions back and forth. Mm -hmm. But those questions are always responses to what the other person has said or asked. And those are the best kinds of discussions where they move us forward, right? And so I think being good listeners and, and being a good listener is not just a matter of, uh, you know, clicking, or un unclicking the unmute button on Zoom, right? Like it's not just a matter of having ears open, but having your mind open to the possibility that the person you're talking to might have something of value to offer you. What a novel idea, right? <laughs> so I'm gonna finish with two very short questions here. Uh, number one, who is your hero? Oh, that's a good one. I, I'm not going to say because it would feel um, like a violation of privacy to say, okay. but I can say that the persons who are my hero are great stabilizing forces in my life. And uh, when I go to act, I always think, would I want to say this thing? Would I want to do this thing in front of those people? Right. And if the answer is yes, then I think that that's, that that makes me feel confident moving forward. And I hope I hope everybody has that kind of person in their lives. Mm -hmm. And if you could mandate one book that everybody had to read, what would it be? <laughs> <laughs> what would it be? Well, I have Harry Frankfurt's on on bullshit sitting on the shelf <laughs> over there. <laughs> we might want to have a little read about that because uh, I think he, I think it. Um, it's really just an autobiography of, of what's going on in society these days. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Julie, thank you so much for giving me your time. I know it's incredibly valuable. Uh, I appreciate the work that you're doing. And I would hope that people on both sides, wherever they may lie and however strongly they may feel, also have an appreciation for what you're doing uh, and encouraging healthy conversation, a healthy level of conflict. Because at the end of the day, the only way we're going to get through this is together. If we come out of this fragmented, we're further behind than before COVID even happened. Yeah, and we're further behind than we probably were centuries ago. So we do not get to, you know, pat ourselves on the back for that. Right. So for Dr. Julie Panessi, I'm going to make sure that all her links are in the bio, also to some of her lectures and the Democracy Fund, also to her books, so you can buy a couple of copies and give them to your friends and have healthy debate over that. And thank you once again for having it locked to the Launchpad podcast with myself, J-Man. You take care, be well, and love simply because you can.